Barukata Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Bakar Bin Vi'im Tovim Veratza Vedivrehim Haneemarim Beemet Baruch Ata Adonai Haboker Batora Uv Moshe Avdo Uv Yisrael Amo Uvin Vie Haemet Bazerik Biskut Uvishem Mashiach Yeshua Amen. Well, everybody, shalom. Welcome to the Haftarah Get You Some. We are going to get right to it today because we're just going to need to do that. So, Assis Boz and Shomer Man here to um, just share with you what Hashem has in His living word. So, Hasis, fire away. All right. So, we are in the book of Amos, uh, starting in chapter 2, verse 6. This will be our half tour for this week. And just start us off with a few things about Amos. It says, there are four prophets who prophesied during the same period, Hoshea, Yeshia, Amos, and Micah, from Peskim 87a. We've heard that before, but we haven't really focused on Amos too much, as opposed to like Isaiah and Hoshea. He was, according to Sukkah 52b, he was one of the eight princes among men, along with Yeshai, Shaul, Shmuel, Amos, Zephaniah, and Zedekiah, Elijah, and the Mashiach. It says, all the prophets were wealthy. Amos owned cattle and had sycamores in the lowlands. And he was known as a stutterer because he stuttered by Ikarabah. Also, it says, 613 precepts were told to Moshe at Sinai. But Amos came and stressed one, that is, seek me and live, from Amos 5.4. And then this last little quick fact about him says Moshe issued four decrees against Israel and four prophets came and canceled them. Moshe said Israel will dwell alone in safety when they are righteous like Yaakov. And Amos came and canceled it says cease please who can be righteous like Yaakov. Let the blessing of safety apply even though Israel is no longer as righteous as Yaakov. Marasha uh, to Machos. 24a so that would be the introduction for almost a lot going on there <laughs> yes definitely okay, okay. there's a few few quick facts about him there but mm-hmm. i think there's there's so much more interesting about about this character you know even even when you look at his name uh, you have like if you break it down you have ayin mim vav which you just plug that into um, into the Bible is usually translated like with with him, and then you had the Samik, which Samik you spell out the, the full meaning is to support something, and so with him came support, and this is really what Amos was. With him came the support, and and that was he what he was really encouraging the people to do is to really support each other and have good good personal uh, relationships. So we are in the um, by the time frame of this prophecy was about uh, 765 to 750 BCE. So we're in that era. Wow. And it mentions that we're in this time where there's just these very, very low social conditions. Mm. The, he really spoke against the kingdom of Israel that had been in existence for about 200 years on its own. And its people had no intention of returning to uh, the Beha Mechdash and Jerusalem 
or to the kings of the house of David. So having they set themselves away from the holy site and away from the kingship of David, and this led to many breakdowns between man and God and between man and man. And so that's why when you get in the book of Amos, you see a lot of the depraved social conditions, especially in this Hathorah, mm-hmm. uh, whereas you have this, uh, you have selfishness of this, this parasitic, the parasitic rich on one hand, and then you have this misery and poverty of the mass of the peoples on the other side of that coin. So again, he compares it kind of like Moshe. He had a uh, speech impediment, when we're Amos, like to be heavy of speech. He had this this message where he was really just just talking to people and and bringing them out of this demoralized state. Uh, let's see. He he was known as really this social reformer because he always spoke against the ill treatment of the poor. He had just this incredibly lofty concept of God, universalism, defense of the oppressed, denunciation of injustice, and the exposition of right conduct, which entitled him to a foremost place among all the pioneers of ethical religion. Which is so interesting seeing that uh, him having a, a stutter would definitely cause him to be lowered in the esteem of the general public you know, as as far as a deficiency physically would go. But yet, the capacity that Hashem would use him for is just amazing. It's it's a very humble, this is definitely in the category of Mashiach ben Yosef to the people like a comforter. So, I like that, that insight that you would bring there about how Amos would be a social reformer because... When we think about Mashiach ben Yosef and the foundation that has to be laid before the final redemption, we do have to be socially reformed because where are our hearts? How are our thoughts? You know, how are we treating one another? And it's amazing to know that if you look at all of the writings of the letters of the Talmudim of Mashiach, and then if you look at the writings of Shaul and you see all those concepts being brought down about harmony, unity, humility. And so this is incredible just to see that in the Haftar. Um, definitely, definitely. And so you definitely have that that relationship to him and and Yeshua being these social reformers that stood up for uh, the downtrodden, the broken down, and those who would persecute them. So, you know, he, he mentioned he was from a town called uh, Tokoa. Really? <laughs> and so this is, it's mentioned, it's mentioned because of this controversy between him and Amasia, who was this priest of Bethel. And we're going to get into some of their conflicts as we go on. Okay. Um, but also, it's, this is the association of, of wisdom. It mentions later on this, this wise woman in that town. So it has association of wisdom, which is why it's mentioned as well. So... Extremely, extremely interesting character. Um, definitely has a lot, a lot of passion. Even though he's known for speaking harshly against the against the people, he's one of the harshest prophets. Yeah. Um, he, you could tell he had this heart. He was a very wealthy man, but he was willing to. He he couldn't rest. He was one of those people who couldn't rest, be at ease when he saw that there was people that were not slackening of their religious observance, but 
their connection between religion and morality had been forgotten, and he couldn't stand that. He says, no, it's not, it's not just about being meticulous in your observance. It's about literally like how you treat people. It's about emulating Hashem. Can I share something to, I think that will tie with that. Yeah, of course. I'm looking up to Koa because if you look at uh, Tekoa, it's basically Tav, Kuf, Vav, Ain, and Kuf, Vav, Ain is actually the gematria of Amos. And so if you look, up, look at how you took Emo Samik, with him came support. Well, you can also see the covenant and the sealing of the covenant in Amos as well, because if you look at the Tav connected to Amos and the town where he came from, so basically if you take the Tav and put it with Amos, you would get the equivalent in Gematria of Tekoa, which is actually the word for a blast or wind instrument, i.e. like a shofar sound. Wow. That's interesting. That's mentioned later on in the half Torah as well. This whole idea of a, a shofar. Well, all right then. Instant, instant connection for sure. And speaking of connections, let's go into just these a little quick into the links to the weekly Parsha. But first, a little rundown um, of our verses. The very beginning talks about the sins of the ten tribes, who he was really he was really sent to the lost tribes of the house of Israel. You know, so this is his mission. So if that sounds familiar. That's not Hebrew roots. That's not two house. <laughs> no, nope, no. Nope. This is like the real 10 tribes. <laughs> Calling them back. Man. It says, the Jews must be holy. And this is the next section. And then in verses 2 through 3 through verse 2, it says, if not, they'll be punished. And the last verses are verses that urge the, urge the Jewish people to take the words of prophets uh, seriously. So this whole idea is about really bringing these 10 tribes closer to repentance, warning them and giving them like insights of what's going to happen if they don't turn back to Hashem. So our links to our half, our uh, Parsha, we have three, these three major links and a few others. Oh. One is that they sold the Sadiq for money and the pauper for shoes. And this, according to the Midrash and uh, Eliezer, is a reference to the cell of Yosef. And we'll get more into that later and that okay. concept. Okay. Two, he warns of another exile. And this, and in this, our half, our Torah par Parsha, we have this idea of this was the events that led into exile. Then you have Yosef himself who's thrown into exile. The and lastly, we have, or the third major thing is, is the idea of taking the words of the prophet. Um, any prophet of Hashem very seriously. You know, this is the half Torah where Yosef also, he mentions his prophecy to the the, the cupbearer, you know, on Pharaoh's servants. Mm. And, you know, they, they would have done very, very well to take his prophecy seriously. He also relates his prophecy to his brothers that we see is fulfilled in later Parshas. So you have this definitely, con these three major connections within here. Well, very, and very Yofi. Also, he mentions this idea of of this contrast of Yosef. And so it's almost like, you know, we had a while back, uh, we, were, we were mentioning this idea of he was calling Ephraim, the prophet calling 
Ephraim back to their father Yaakov and their special relationship. Yes. And so here we, we almost have this idea of almost hinting at the lost tribes of Ephraim, calling them back to Yosef and his character and saying, hey, come back, come back to your forefathers. So we have in almost 2.7, it mentions a man and his father sin with a betrothed girl. And this is almost like this completely diametrically opposed to this whole Yosef abstaining from Potiphar's wife. Then later you have, you have in verse 11, he mentions the Nazarim, the Nazarites. And according to Shabbos 139a, it mentions that Yosef was the first Nazarite ever. Say what? Yes, Yosef was the first oh, Nazir, Nazarite right. ever, according to Talmud. And so, of course, that's interesting when you kind of look at the word Nazareth, you know, when it mentions Yeshua of Nazareth. Yep. Um, Nazir is assumed to be one of the roots of Nazareth itself. So another tie-in about uh, Mashiach Yeshua being linked to Mashiach ben Yosef. <laughs> and then lastly, he, he mentions this idea of Hashem reveals his secrets to his servants, the prophets. And three verse seven, and of course this is what he did for Yosef as well. That's right. You know, with That's his how brothers. He interpreted it. Yes, with the cupbearers, with Pharaoh, and so it's all this. This almost like this callback, this callback to to Yosef and say, hey, remember his ways. And it's interesting because we pray on the Shemona Ezra and Amidah that it starts off, you know, God of Abraham, God of Yitzchak, God of Yaakov. Okay. And, and you've seen the, the Nevi'im, the prophets, they have this tendency to remind everybody of their forefathers, wow. of Abraham, of Yitzhak, of Yaakov, of Yosef. And so when we're praying the Amidah, like we, we read that, and that's like a, the first step is almost like this call to repentance. Yes, it's this call to repentance through the idea of identity, through reminding us of who we are and who we ought to attach ourselves to. Okay, you just summed up the last two Haftaradrashas. That is legit. Yeah. <laughs> we get better of linking all these together. I mean, I think there's a, there's definitely a, and like there's an order to the Torah portions. And there's yeah. you could kind of see them kind of flow into each other. Yeah. There's an order to the Haftaras as well. Man. And so, uh, it's one, one quick note on that verse you just read, uh, three seven. If you look at the Hebrew, it says "ki im galasodo el avadav," which is um, he says revealed his secret to his servants. Mm -hmm. If you look at the word for "reveal," it's actually "gala," which is close to "geula." If you add an olive. Oh wow! So you can see how the redemption has this aspect of revealing to it, especially when you add in the olive to it. But when you just look at here, there's an aspect of redemption in the secrets that Hashem reveals to his, his servants. Oh, wow, that's incredible. You know, that ties in perfectly what, what Mishak says, you know, I've been made, made known through the prophets. And so here you have Hashem saying his secrets revealed to his servants and like this whole aspect of redemption is concealed in there. So that's, that's incredible. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's also interesting that we're, we're reading this around Hanukkah time. It's closing oh, in. Oh, yeah. Coming up very, very soon. And this is actually it. taking it back um, <laughs> to when we did like the, the half tour background. And that was actually established in the time of the Hasmoneans and, and Antiochus. When he forbade the Torah reading. Wow, that's and right. So you, have, 
you have here, you know, we're coming up on time. So I think I, you know, just throw that out as a reminder. And so the Chazal, they established half Torah readings in place of the Torah. And that's why there's so many connections between them. And so you can kind of imagine the people during that time listening to this half Torah of Amos and just hearing the clues. Okay, he's talking about dreams. Okay, he's talking about he's talking about this idea about selling the Sadiq for silver, mm. you know? And so you can kind of see him help piece together, okay, what Torah portion are we in and what's the what's what's the message that we need to take from this to live our lives. Get you some. That's legit. <laughs> Told our Rabbah for the reminder. Raksha. <laughs> All right, so which brings us to our very first verse, almost 2-6. So says Hashem, for three sins I will forgive the kingdom of Israel, but for the fourth one I will not turn away punishment. What is the fourth sin? Uh That the judges sell, pronounce guilty, the innocent party, in court case for bribe money, and the poor man's right to fair judgment. They sell for a sum of money so petty that the judge can merely buy a pair of shoes with it. That's, of course, with the Midrash... um, some Midrash commentary within there. And so it mentions these three sins, and these are the three cardinal sins, you know, idolatry, adultery, murder. You are meant to, if it comes down to, you know, your life, you must give up your life rather than commit any of these three. Murder, idolatry, and adultery. So it's better to give up your life and commit these. But then Hashem says there's a fourth one. And this is really where the whole generation went wrong. And they will persecute the poor. They would uh, like tax them unnecessarily. They would, you know, judge them unfairly. Like completely, completely wicked and corrupt generation. And that's the fourth sin. That's like I've had enough. And you see that also in the flood. The story of the flood. Uh, Hashem finalized his verdict of the extermination only after people became guilty of robbery and exploitation of their fellow man. You know, you see, you see that, and. You know, and this is also, of course, a reproof of the cell of Yosef, right. who his brothers actually bought a pair of shoes from some of the money that they made from him. Did you also think about the six trials that Yeshua went through? Do tell. Well, you know, there's this thing where he was minding his own business, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And then somebody shows up and kisses him because he sold him for silver and then people come and kidnap him because he's god's kid so you know and then he goes under these different trials with say um uh anas caiaphas the sanhedrin Pilate, herod Pilate, and all this is going on from about some commentaries say 2 a.m. in the morning to about 10 a.m. And you and I both know, as well as Judaism teaches, you are not to hold court sessions when it is after sundown and before the Tamid offering is offered. Yes. So these hours are not court hours and Yeshua was on trial. And the people who had him on trial definitely were taken by bribes definitely corrupt definitely was not against or not for him for sure so anyway just want to throw that out there definitely definitely there's 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 so many connections between him and and yosef in these trials that's why you know i've heard of mashiach and yosef the suffering mashiach 
there's also that that the question is what brought about this hatred in the first place what brought it about do tell and so you mentioned breaking breaking torah law and you're mentioning like this whole idea of hatred and persecution and what brought about this hatred was this whole idea of who yosef associated himself with and who he kind of stuck up for in his way so the brothers the brothers the sons of leah they they would um make their stepbrothers, the sons of Bilha and Zilpah, do all these menial, like servant-like tasks, like of you know, to like like the same of like removing one's shoe. Oh man! And Yosef, however, he kept company with them, and he reported all this evil by the others to his father, mm-hmm. and so consequently, his brothers, the sons of Leah, began to hate him. But the hatred doesn't just stem from his his reports. His hatred stems from he associated himself, looking at the concept, he associated himself with those who the brothers, the the eldest, the ones in charge, saw as less than themselves. And this is really what's going on in Amos' time. You have all these wealthy, we mentioned it's, it's really depraved. You have one hand, the corrupt, wealthy who are persecuting, and you have the suffering and the afflicted masses poverty stricken and literally almost you know he's going to vouch for them he's going to re- like like fight for them and their rights and their 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 boundaries that should be respected and this is also what yeshua did why he was hated so much he he sat down with the sinners he ate with the quote-unquote sinners not necessarily that they were constantly in sin it's just that they were the people who were thought to be less than no don't sit with them they're not to our standards and this is also evident like like we said what yosef the idea of how yosef treated his brothers okay well that was violent (laughs) (laughs) there's there's also this idea i'd like to like take a a quick swerve uh while we're here and mention this idea that you know, we, we talked about this whole idea of, of, of shoes. Why they necessarily, why is the selling of the shoe mentioned here, you know, and, and, and even in the Torah portion, the whole gaining the shoe. It has, in ancient times, only free people used to wear shoes, whereas like the slaves, the slaves would not wear shoes. And so the brothers were demonstrating that in their eyes, they were free men. They, they were the ones above Yosef, and Yosef was a slave. And so it's interesting that, that you have Amos, he brings up this whole idea, and this is what he st- starts this whole Haftorah, this whole idea of this, this reminiscent imagery of the slavery and servitude. Yet he's known as this, this huge social reformer. And if you don't know a lot, about, a lot about the Torah, this could put you in kind of in an awkward situation because, you know, there's a lot in the Torah that actually deals with this idea of slavery and so if you watch a lot of tv or you know chasve shalom or are are around this whole secular ideology there's a lot of hatred on the bible there's a lot of false accusations about what slavery actually was in that context and so you have like a lot of atheists who come at um you know judaism or christianity since it associates itself with what they call the old testament you know, and then you have the whole whole idea of the people who just don't know how to defend it. And so I'd like to take a moment to swerve to the context of slavery 
And what it actually was, according to Rambam's Mishnah Torah. We'll get you some, let it go. Just to clarify this and shut down all those who would, who would bring up evil accusations. <laughs> this is from Hilchot Avadim, which is the law of slaves. Mm. So I'm just going to read a few brief sentences about certain laws that cannot be crossed. And the whole idea of concept of, of the whole idea of like a Jewish slave, you have the idea of they were either taken because they're so poverty stricken and it was a mean to help help sustain them until they had enough to provide on their own. Or it was to to give them um, like an atonement if they were caught stealing from that household. And so they could work and kind of earn back their uh, reputation. So that's the whole that's mainly the whole concept. But here's a few few laws that so like the idea of slavery according to Torah, as opposed to, to the evils of slavery to the world. So according to Torah, uh, Rambam's Mishnah Torah says a slave should be sold privately and with dignity. A slave may not be forced to do crushing labor, and this includes the idea of you know unnecessary work, meaningless tasks. Says if a non-Jew purchases a slave and oppresses him, the Jewish neighbors are required to make him stop. A Jew is forbidden to force his Hebrew slave to do degrading tasks. He must treat him like an employee. As it says, he shall be with you like an employee or resident hand by Ikra 25.39. And also, uh, to support the other one, he can't do degrading tasks. Do not work him like a slave by Ikra 25.39. The master also may not do, um, order him to do laundry, cut hair, or bake bread for the general public. Only for, only for himself. If he should actually need that, but not for the public. Next one. A master must treat his, his Hebrew slave or maid as his equal regarding food, drink, and clothing. Oh. As it states, and lodging, and lodging, like where you sleep. Because he has it good with you. Devarim 15, 16 is the mm. proof for that. Mm. And so it mentions this whole idea. You know, he may not, you may not eat white bread while he eats black bread. You may not drink old wine while he drinks new wine. You may not sleep on soft material while he sleeps on straw. You may not live in the city while he lives in a village or vice versa. As it says, he is free to leave you, Vayikra 2541. From here, our sages derive that buying a Hebrew slave is like buying a master's a master over oneself. Oh. So the master must treat the Hebrew slave in like a brother, is what it says, Mr. Torah. As it says, but as for your brothers, the children of Israel, Vayikra 2546. Nevertheless, when performing his assigned task, the Hebrew slave must behave submissively. So there's this idea of submission, but you're literally buying a master over over yourself. You're literally buying a brother. You cannot treat him any less than you in regards to what you drink, like what you wear, what you eat, and where you lodge. That's that's the whole aspects of life. So he's essentially the equal in every regards, except he he works for you during doing some ta- some tasks. May, may I have a tag whenever you have a moment? Yeah, so I'm going to get into, okay, this whole concept of what about the whole non-Jewish slave and clarify that because a lot of people may have heard Hebrew slave, Hebrew slave, Jewish slave, stuff like that. Okay. And it's just, it's really the same concept. In general, the same concept, not allowed to do like all these degrading tasks. And so it says a master may not humiliate his slave, slapping him or verbally abusing him. The master must speak calmly to a slave, listening to his grievances. Instead of getting angry, you're screaming. Mm. And it mentions this idea of the, the early sages actually 
the one the ones who had this whole idea of, of slaves remember it's in the importance of like a brother not as actually a slave as we may think it based on the evils in this country and other countries wow. the early sages shared each and every meal with their slaves in fact they fed their slaves and animals before sitting down to their meals and so and on a conceptual note you have that all whole idea of you look at the nations and how they treated each other like they were sacrificing their children to demons to these idols they had no conduct they were thieves they were murders and if you read a lot of the midrashim like that's what they based their heritage off of murdery robbery adultery you know and so literally to take from this nation to take from the nations and put them in a jewish context where you have all these rules and ethical values you're literally redeeming them you're literally saving them from these evil cultures wow. because in their culture it's like it's evil, it's wickedness, it's suffering, it's persecution. But in the Jewish culture, you're not allowed to mistreat people. You have this idea of you are to emulate Hashem who takes care of you, even though he's the, the greatest, you know, he's the creator of all. That's what, that's what uh, Ramban has to say in Mishnah Torah about the laws of slavery. So that's slavery according in a Jewish Torah oral law context. <laughs> Man. If anyone ever uh, uh, confronts anybody listening to this podcast or any of us Please. with that whole idea, the evil mentality, and they're trying to say God's evil, chasve shalom, Jewish people, the Torah is evil, chasve shalom, meet him with that. That's a get you some of epic proportions right there. I am very grateful you took time to swerve us into talking about slavery from a Torah perspective and clearing up any confusion. So... Uh, if I could, I just wanted to share that you just said about the Jewish slave, the Hebrew slave, that when you buy him, you are acquiring for yourself a master. Yes. Okay. Like that is a pair or like that's a paradigm shift for me because, you know, I, I've never thought about the fact of a person who buys a slave you know, they're now going to be considered less than their slave, like, or equal, Slika. And um, that this slave is actually going to be something that challenges you. And it's yes. kind of like, that's in insane. So what I immediately thought of when you said that is how we know that Mashiach Yeshua was purchased by us as a slave, which I was going back and forth in, in my uh, thinking as I was thinking about Yosef was sold for 20 pieces of silver, Mashiach was Ooh. sold for 30 pieces of silver. It's just like, okay, there's a greater sum there. I get it. And I'm trying to think about what's going on. But either way, you if, if you think about the principle of it, it's about the, the acquiring for yourself a master. And so thinking of Mashiach Yeshua as a slave that we bought, we actually acquired for ourselves a master. And then you put that with Mashiach's own words saying, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve. And then you have the letter to Philippians written by Shaul and chapter two, verse seven, where he says, Mashiach emptied himself without renouncing or diminishing his deity but only temporarily giving up the outward expression of divine equality and his rightful dignity by assuming the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of man. So 
when you think about all that, Mashiach is truly the master of all creation because that's where creation came from. But yet he allowed himself to be bought as if he is a slave to us. But in doing that, he brought us to an equal level with him as not as saying that we're like deity and like we rule the world and all this kind of stuff. But his essence, his Torah, his teachings, the mind of Hashem that we're to have through us purchasing him as a slave. We are now brought to that level of being able to express and be imitators of Hashem. So just wanted to throw that out there. Todah I love those those connections. You know, it definitely helps, you know, read the whole uh, in a completely new perspective. Thank you, Hashem, for vision, for, uh, man, insight. I don't know. It's just, I'm, I'm happy. Hashem. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's get to uh, verse two. <laughs> verse two of this portion, which would be chapter two, verse seven. Mentions the uh, the judges wish the dust of the earth on the head of the poor. This means that if the poor people refuse to comply with the unjust verdict, the judges demanded their, their police to trample the poor in the dust. Mm. They, the Reshaim, caused the humble to leave the proper path. A man and his father purposely go to the same betrothed girl to sin with her before the wedding, thereby disgracing my name. Ouch. You know, this, this tour portion, you know, just thinking about this whole concept of Hanukkah, you know, one aspects of greek persecution since we are in that the time era we're coming up on hanukkah one aspect of greek persecution would they would take betrothed woman and right before the wedding night they would be with her and then throw her back to her husband and so you know it's kind of like anyone's ever seen the movie brave braveheart that whole that whole scene was was not actually historically accurate uh they didn't necessarily do that to the historical figure of william wallace but they, I, I guarantee you, they got this idea from the persecution of the Jews in the time of Antiochus. So, so you think about that with today's quote-unquote bachelor parties and bachelorette parties? Ooh. Wow. You get practical. That's too practical, man. So, <laughs> I'm just saying, you started it. We got to finish it. That's horrible. Oh, my word. Yeah. I, I love that, you know, because a lot of times... We think we're so far off from this concept, mm. but now we just made it socially acceptable oh. and something that's enjoyed, you know, but that is the whole idea of a bachelor party is let's call it for what it is evil. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's, that's straight up evil. That's straight up what Antiochus did mm. and, and many other people. Anyways, brings us to- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to go through it. So I'm not too weighed down by, by um, you know, these statements, because once you realize we're, we're not too far off from these people, it's a hard pill, pill to swallow. I'm hanging and, on to you. Keep lying. <laughs> all right. All right. It says, in Amos' generation, the people's sole intention, their sole intention was to anger God. They would even try to calculate which of the two sins was greater and proceed to commit the greater one. Like, this is where they were. Like, even, even this whole idea of, you think of a father and son to be with one betrothed woman, usually there's shame between father and son, especially in matters like this, but yeah. here there's no shame. It's just complete filth, and this is where they were steeped in. And so, you know, that mentions later on, you know, the judges reclined on pledged garments taken from the people 
who refused to accept their unjust verdict while eating meals near every altar built for idols, and they drink wine bought with money imposed as a fine on the innocent in the house of their gods. Wow, it's just like this whole worship of idols is just a, a sad excuse for their loose moral conduct. Yeah. It permitted, quote-unquote, permitted the judges to, jo- to enjoy themselves at any cost, even at their victim's expense. And, you know, mentioning this whole idea of, you know, we're not too far off. A lot of people, that's why they, they refuse to believe in God. They want to act how they want. You know, they're, they're, they're gods themselves. And that gives them entitlement to, to deem whatever they see fit as right. Wow. Next verse, we have this whole idea of redeeming. You know, he's, he's remembering. He's having them remember that Hashem redeemed them, you know, from, from Egypt. That's right. Now remember what happened to the, uh, the next couple of verses, what happened to the Amari, the strongest of the seven names who lived in Eretz Canaan. You know, mentions uh, Shachon and Og, who were brought down to nothingness. Wow. And, and several others. And then in verse 10, it talks about redeeming from Mitzrayim, essentially saying, hey, look, you, you owe Hashem a, a debt. You should be grateful at the very least. You know, you're in, and you're attached to him and with your covenant. Mm-hmm. And then verse verse two eleven says, In every generation I have established some of your children as prophets upon whom my Shephanah rested, and I bestowed upon your mo- young men a spirit of purity to become Nazarites, Nazarim. Is it not so, children of Israel? And so there's this idea of this verse is he asked this question, you know, is it not so, children of Israel? Is Amos's goal with this question, it's it's not to bring his listeners to an admission of guilt or to conceive them to concede the case. You know, neither it's neither is it about, you know, highlighting the general attitude of ingratitude of their poor behavior after God has done for them, after all God has done for them. You know, rather, there's a deeper, deeper level to what Amos is doing. Rather, it's used to achieve two goals. First, he wants Israel to acknowledge that having the Nevi'im and Nitzarim and their society is a gift from God. And second, the question itself is meant to set up this maximum impact for the next pursuit, this next verse. So again, it's, it's meant to, to serve as, you know, acknowledgement of the Nitzarim and their society is a gift from God and to set up the impact for this next verse that's about to come. And essentially his purpose, his whole purpose is to redefine the relationship, their relationship with those who threatened their their own complacency, their own laziness, their own evil, which were the, the Nazarites and the, the Torah scholars. Wow. And so, like I said, maximum input for the next verse, you know, he's saying, hey, these guys were a gift from God. He, 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 he got rid of the, the Amari, he redeemed you from Egypt, and he gave you these prophets, he gave you these Nazarites as well. And then here comes the blow. All these gifts from God. Here comes the blow. Verse 12. But you urged the Nazarene to drink wine, which is forbidden to them, so that they should become drunk and consequently disqualified from rendering halakhic decisions. And your prophets you commanded do not prophesy. You did not want to hear the truth and had no intention of improving yourselves. Wow. The Midrash... That is oh, Hanukkah of epic proportions, bro. Said Hanukkah of epic proportions. That I mean, that literally is what the story of Hanukkah is about. You know, like all the all the corruption and and just taking out all these gifts and just defiling it. 
like disqualification like that is that's why we celebrate hanukkah to to remember to triumph over these things to rededicate ourselves from that yes amen so anyway you were going i just sorry i just that's good that's good like like i said you know it's it's great that we can relate these things to the time frame we're in like how beautiful is that we open up the torah we open up uh nefaim you know any of the writings not only does it relate to us on a personal level but also relates to the 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 days and the months and the year that we're in and so it's it's beautiful how all-encompassing scripture truly is you know especially when you you know i have an understanding of the oral torah there's that this thing is not only this this kind of it's not only this 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 personal uh, this verse doesn't just hit, a, hit us personally and remind us personally of our own oblig- obligations. It also it also relates to Amos, who himself had a very bitter personal experience concerning this verse. And so it's time for story time. Come on. The city of Bethel was at the center of idol worship in the kingdom of Israel. That is where Amos chose to stand up one day and boldly call out, the embalmed altars and temples of idols in this kingdom will be destroyed, and the royal house of Yerim will perish by the sword. The Jewish priest, Amatsia, was officiating in the temple of Bethel at the time, finding Amos' presence most disturbing. He decided to get rid of him. To this end, Amatsia sent a message to King Yeravam saying, Know that the prophet Amos is conspiring against you. He is predicting that you will fall by the sword. Your enemies will certainly take this as an excuse to assassinate you. Furthermore, he has predicted that all the Jews will be exiled from the land. Amatia had actually misquoted Amos' words in his attempt to conceive the king to execute Amos. Amos had never predicted that King Yeravam himself would fall by the sword, but rather that his house, his family, would perish. Neither had he described a general exile from Israel. Even though King Yeravam was a rasha, a very wicked man, the same one who set up two golden calves and would publicly humiliate King Shlomo. One thing must be said to his credit. When he received Amasa's message, he refused to accept it, for he considered it Lashanara. I cannot believe that the righteous Amos has predicted that I will fall by the sword. Has Hashem not assured me that only in the generation following mine will evil befall the royal house? But even Amos did say so. I dare not lay a hand upon him. For I know that the Shekhanah, the Divine Presence, dictates whatever he speaks. God may indeed have changed his promise because of our sins. When Amasa saw that the king would not harm the prophet, he decided to get rid of Amos on his own. He sent the prophet on a stern message. Leave this land immediately. We've had enough of your gloomy prophecies. Why don't you try your luck in the kingdom of Yehuda? There they will pay you well to hear you talk about our downfall. Here in Bethel, the temple center, we speak only in the name of our gods. Amos was not intimidated. He replied, I don't prophesy in order to earn money. I'm a rich cattle owner. I don't need an extra income of this sort. I prophesy because God called me away from my herds, and he let his spirit rest on me. You, Amasa Ararasha, this is what Hashem predicts concerning you. Your wife will be taken by strange men, just as you led B'nai Israel to stray after idols. Your sons and daughters will fall by a sword because of your attempt at my life. The piece of your land you own will be divided among the Babylonians since you wanted to drive me away from the land. And you will be led to Babel, and on its impure earth your life will end since you wish to stop Hashem's Holy Spirit of prophecy from resting on me. 
Moreover, you falsified my words by reporting to the king. I foretold that all Benazir will be exiled. As you said, so it shall be. Hashem has now informed me that this will indeed come true. Undaunted by all the attempts to stop him from prophesying, Amos continued to proclaim Hashem's words in the kingdom of the ten tribes. Wow. Can I have a request on your story times? Yeah. Right Can you start saying the end? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That'd be really cool. <laughs> Amos continued to proclaim Hashem's word in the kingdom of the ten tribes. The end. <laughs> I love it. I love it. God, I could humor you. Man, that is in- that. Okay, yeah. All right, do your thing. <laughs> All right. Uh, so he he goes in there. He talks about these tribulations. He talks about how all these mighty men will run away. How all the light-footed won't won't escape whatsoever. There will be no escape for anybody. Then there's this very, very interesting section. Uh-oh. So why Hashem deals strictly with the Jewish people? You know, there's this concept, according to Chazal, that Hashem judges the righteous far more strictly. And so there's a little hint into what's happening. And so the question is, why has Hashem, throughout history, not disregarded the Jewish people's sin, but has responded by afflicting them with suffering? So he said, "You okay, because here in the the parsha it says that Hashem loves His people, right? It mentions it mentions listen to the message Hashem has spoken concerning you, Ben Israel, concerning the whole family brought from the land of Egypt, who is since under my direct supervision. And the verse two: Only you do I love from among the families on earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your sins. That's literally the verse, and it mentions the word uh, uh, yadati, which is usually like like the idea of of knowing, like that. It says it sometimes means to love, as it is in Tehillim 144.1. Wow. And so the question is, if he loves us so much, why is there so much persecution? Why did all these exiles happen? Why was our temple destroyed? Why did the Holocaust happen? Why why are there there shootings and and different synagogues and 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 all this this persecution that is taking place for thousands of years? Why? This is actually this is actually the same question that and i won't go into the um unless you want me to but i don't know if i'll go into this full story time this is the same question that taxpayers asked the torah scholar rav abaihu taxpayers asking questions to a rabbi yes, to a rabbi do you rabbi know what you just said it happens you like, can throw it down like uh should we pay taxes to caesar or shall we Give our tzedakah to Hashem. What say you? I don't know why I did it in that accent, but I was just thinking about the the story of the coin and the fi- the fish's mouth. Yeah, it's everybody, possible. Everybody was asking <laughs> Yeshua, should they pay taxes or should they pay tzedakah to Hashem? And he was just like, uh, whose face is on the coin? Okay, give to Caesar what is Caesar and give to Hashem what is Hashem's. So, yes, pay your taxes and get your zadok. Anyway, you were saying. Arguably one of the first yeses to a seemingly... Oh, come on. I agree with that. So there's these, there's these, uh, this question, you know, that they asked him is like, okay. And they actually bring up scripture before him. Oh, come on. They do. They bring up this verse in, in... Ovadia says, what is the meaning of the verse? 
Only you do I love from all the families on earth, and therefore I will punish you for all your sins. They asked, if someone's angry, will he take it out on his friend? If Hashem loves Bnei Israel, he should not punish them at all. Rather, he should pour out his wrath upon the other nations whom he loves less. And so he, he they asked this to Rav Safrai, who was, you know, very, very much in depth in the study of Gemara, and he did not have an answer for them. And Rabbi Abihu actually vouched for them. You know, the taxpayers liked Rabbi Abihu. He was greatly admired, and so they exempt him from taxes. And he also, you know, he said, hey, you know, he, he praised his, his friend, Rabbi Safrai, by the tax collectors, and they, they let him go from paying taxes too. And so they, they hear that Rabbi Abihu is, is saying, hey, this is a great guy. So they ask him a question. He can't answer their question. Wow. And they get angry. He says, you know, they, they, they tie scarf tightly around his neck to ridicule him causing him extreme discomfort then rabbi who he walks in and he says you know he's shocked he's like why do you mistreat this man why do you mistreat rabbit safari and it says you vouch for this man's greatness yet he can't even explain a simple verse to us and he explains you know he's he specialized in the study of gemara you know but i didn't say he was well versed in the book of the prophets let me hear your question and so he answers them with this parable Oh, come on, with a parable? With a parable. Man, so Jewish. Can I go into story time? Story time. Shaney, come on. <laughs> a rich man lent a large sum of money to two people, one of whom was his friend and the other not. Time went by and neither of them paid him back. In a few months, the loan was due to be repaid. If two men should fail to do so, they would be jailed for their offense. The rich man did not wish his friend to suffer the hardship of incarceration. He therefore sent a messenger to him asking for immediate payment. I'm sorry, but I don't have the money right now, he replied. Hearing this, the rich man didn't give up. From time to time, he sent more messengers assisting on at least partial payments, which he finally received. Soon afterwards, he again continued requesting payment. And when the friend paid on account, he waited a few days and again, again asked for more money to be paid back until there is only a small debt outstanding. On the other hand, the creditor did not bother the second person at all with requests for payments. When the date for repayment the loan had arrived, the friend of the rich man had only a small outstanding bill to settle, while the second person who still owed the full amount was cast into jail. Now, the friend gratefully acknowledged the rich man's kindness. It was true that it had been difficult for him to, to scrap together the money, but his but this had spared him far from uh, spared him from far worse hardships. This is how Hashem deals with the Jewish people, explained Rabbi Baihu. Because he loves them, he forces them to pay for their sins in this world. The wicked nations, on the other hand, are left to their own devices. However, when the day of judgment arises, they will be denied Alam Haba, which is far worse punishment. While Israel's suffering in this world is really an act of kindness on Hashem's part. The tax collectors were truly satisfied with this explanation. Wow. So this whole idea, and there's there's another concept stressed by, by the rabbis that says the instrument Hashem inflicts wounds is the same instrument he heals with. That's right. That and so this whole idea is suffering. suffering is our healing. Yes. You know, the, there's the Khuzari, who's a great um, Jewish philosopher, you know, like this this work of, of philosophy, he compares the Jewish nation to the heart. Mm. He says, you know, the, the other nations are the body. And so just as the heart is to a person, it is, is the heart is, is vital to the person. It is also highly vulnerable 
it's the he compares it as the sickest and healthiest of organs since it suffers as soon as a person is exposed to hardships or strain oh. and so there's this idea that that the jewish people were the heart of the universe like, call israel we can't tolerate any spiritual impurity so hashem purges out of us instantly thus ensuring our our high standard of holiness you just call the Jewish people the heart of the universe. You need to get some help. Yeah, isn't that a cool title? Wow. <laughs> Considering that, you know, the Torah ends with Lamed, it begins with Vav, which is, or Bet, yeah. which is Lev, which yeah. is the heart. So the heart of the universe carries the heart of the universe. Yeah. Oh my. That'd be a good title. The heart of the universe. Wow, that needs well, to be a song. Know, Is that what you're saying? <laughs> the song, maybe what I'm personally going to call this half Torah because he's speaking to them. Oh. He's speaking to the heart. He's speaking to the heart to be cleansed so that the body will be restored. Because Amos is not just about you know just the Jews bonding together. He sees this whole aspect of of of, of global peace. He sees the he has the future in mind. <laughs> And so, literally, he, he stresses the importance of good relationships, interpersonal relationships between man and man, and also with the nations in Israel. And so, literally, well, that's why he's talking to Israel right now. It's the heart of the body. It's the heart of the universe. And if they are going to be restored, the entire body will be restored. Well, okay, then, Mr. Chassis Baz. That, <laughs> wow, like... I'm just, man, I said this a long time ago, and it's like, that's not right. Like a French swordsman you are. You're just so swift, and it's like a ninja and a samurai, just with <laughs> elegance. I just, oh, that's so, wow. Touche. Uh, wow. <laughs> You're sharp. <laughs> no, that was no. sharp. Ah, uh, I see. I got the point. Just, yeah. <laughs> Just to uh, tag with what you're saying, because you just said that, um, you know, if you're angry with someone, why would you take it out on the one you love? Which, dude, that is epic. So I just want to submit to the court. Yeshiyahu, chapter 53. You know where I'm going. It says that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our wickedness. The punishment required for our well-being. The punishment required for our well-being. Okay, that never stood out to me before. That's why I had to repeat it. And then it says, and by his stripes, by his wounds, we are healed. That is Yeshiyahu 53, 5. And then I wanted to just tag onto that verse 10 which it says, yet Hashem was willing to crush him, causing him to suffer. Some translations say, yet Hashem, it pleased him to crush him and cause him to suffer. So some people say, this is not about the Mashiach, this is about Israel. Well, as Israel is the heart of the universe that carries the heart of the universe, the answer is yes, it is Israel. It is Mashiach. Because where does Israel come from? They come from Mashiach. Rabbi Griffin today on the Aliyah day for the Aliyah about Yosef, his garments being stripped from him and all that. He said, um, well, ah, ah, it's there. Oh my goodness. It, um, talking about the Israel comes from Mashiach 
and Mashiach wasn't. Oh, I lost it. Oh, man. Slika. Well, there's something in there he dropped today about uh, Israel and Mashiach. And you just tied it up with the heart and all that. So, okay. Rukashim. Check out the rabbis all y'all day. Shameless plug. That that was a shameless plug. (laughs) And I fail. (laughs) It was was actually just building interest for the audience. Wow. What happened? (laughs) Now the question is out there. (laughs) <laughs> okay, check that all out. You'll you'll see what I was what I was trying to say. All right, so we have this this I this this last last little section of Haftorah where he illustrates four different parables that the Jews must take him seriously. And just kind of reading this, be like, oh, why did he say that? You know. And so this is kind of that explained. These are the four parables to take the prophet's word seriously. The first idea is in parable one that prophecy is planned. That's where it says in verse three, do. Two people ever walk together in the same place without having prearranged it. And the whole meaning of this is the, the Navi's words do not reflect his own reasoning, rather the result from Hashim's communication with him. And these are actually the two persons he's referring to. The two are Hashim and the prophet who walk together, and the result is prophecy. So it's not something that's flippant, it's planned out. Wow. Second one, parable two, an evil prophecy is the result of sin. And this is where it says in verse four, talking about a lion will roar and will a lion roar in the forest without finding prey. And so the whole meaning is similarly, Hashem never tells a Navi, never tells a prophet to roar like a lion and threaten the Jews with evil unless he has found them sinful. Wow. Rule three in parable three, sin traps B'nai Israel. Does a bird ever fall into a trap on the ground if there is no bait in it? And is a trap later raised from the ground without having captured anything? Verse five. The meaning of this parable is that you can't just think you can sin. And the accusing angel, the the, the, the Satan, cursed be he, he's not just going to ignore it. Your sin ends up trapping you. And then there's suffering that must take place to purge you of this evil that you've, you've contaminated yourself with. Wow. Fourth parable is Israel must heed the prophet's warnings. This is where it's talking about a shofar. You mentioned that earlier. In regards to like the the city city's name, I believe the whole the blowing of the wind. Tekoa. Tekoa. Says is a shofar ever sounded in the city to warn the residents of an enemy attack, and people won't tremble. And so this this whole meaning of this is that just as people tremble when they hear the piercing sound of the shofar, if you would only repent, you'd be saved from the danger. Yes. Teshuva from the sound of the shofar will bring you salvation. It will bring you salvation bringing Yeshua oh my gosh I'm not saying nothing I'm not <laughs> yeah. but I will throw myself through this convenient window <laughs> you know maybe maybe why you know Yeshua said in reference to his his return he mentioned this allusion to Rosh Hashanah and the shofar and this whole idea yes but anyway. you know it also compares Hashem to a war advisor who is is telling people, hey, you know, this is what's going to happen. This is what you need to do to conquer the conquer the enemy. And so he sends his prophets because his mercy. He does not want the wicked to die, but he desires their teshuva. Oh come on, man, come on. Yeah. And you know, while we're on the topic of 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 these these high holy days, there's also the idea of of selling for shoes that's mentioned in in 
two verse six, chapter two verse six. Uh-huh. We that's also part of the Yom Kippur liturgy. Yes, the ten martyrs. Yes, and so the whole idea of that he begins with, he prefaces what's included in the idea of atonement. Since we're talking about this whole idea of uh, being redeemed through uh, suffering, being redeemed through you know the the shofar and teshuva and returning to Hashem. All right, and of course, there's our famous verse three seven where he's made everything known to the prophets and it cites examples like Yosef, who it was prophecy was made known to him, uh, Shmuel. Uh, more like Samuel, mm-hmm. right? Elisha revealing military secrets, which is an actually an incredible story. Um, and then Daniel is another one. That's true. Uh, and we have this last verse from our half Torah. Bring it. it. Says verse eight: If a lion roars, who will not fear? If a shim speaks to a prophet, how can you not prophesy? Therefore, how can you tell your prophets don't prophesy? They must carry Hashem's message to you, and you, realizing power and purpose of prophecy, should do. The Shuva mentions here that Are, where it says lion, is a collective term which includes all the lions in the world. What? And so every single lion ever existed in the world roaring at the same time. And yet Hashem's voice is far more powerful than that. Now, wow. A very quick story time. Shlishi, come on. <laughs> when Rabbi Yoshua bin Chananya was once questioned by the emperor about the comparison of Shem to a lion, he gave the emperor a different answer, as the next Midrash tells us. The Roman emperor once asked Rabbi Yoshua bin Chananya, why does the prophet compare your God to a roaring lion. What's so special about a lion anyway? After all, a strong man can kill a lion. Rabbi Hosha bin Chananya uh, replied, Our God is not compared to an ordinary lion, but to a lion from the neighborhood of Eliyah. Ooh. What kind of lion is that? I would like to see one. Impossible, replied the Rav. But I must see it, insisted the emperor. Rabbi Hosha pl- rep- uh, prayed. The lion emerged from the fort. Letting out a tremendous roar. It was still at a distance of 400 parsha from the palace, yet its mighty roar, its mighty roar caused much upheaval. Pregnant women miscarried to the great shock, and the palace's walls caved in. The lion moved closer to a distance of 300 parsha. It roared once more. This time, the emperor himself fell off his throne with fright. The people's teeth chattered out of fear. The emperor was visibly shaken. Please pray that the lion should return where it came from, he begged Rabbi Yehoshua. Rabbi Yehoshua prayed, and the lion returned to the forest. The, the emperor now had an inkling of Hashem's vast power. From then on, he no longer belittled the prophet's words. Wow. <laughs> so, an inkling. An inkling. And so we have this, this always, it, it's constantly comparing Hashem to like something physical. <laughs> and that is to say that you know, it mentions that this is this is like and gives this idea of a shim. You know, anytime it me, me, mentions the idea of comparing to a lion or comparing him to like the hand of a shim or the face of a shim, what that tells us is that what we know in this physical world, what we know is just a shadow. It's like this uh, a fake imaginative version of the higher reality that's found in him. So we have an arm, but. He has the real arm, if you will. We have all these lions, but 
like you you take the the essence of the line like we mentioned the roar and it gives this higher picture of who Hashem is like all of nature points back to who he is and if you take that phrase im gala sodo el avadav hanavi'im the initial letters have a gematria of 140 and that gematria is pani which is my face so when you look at the revelations and the inklings that we get to begin to know who Hashem is, to begin to fathom of who Hashem is, who is his face, and look to him, and then you'll begin to understand. This is probably why they say the beginning of knowing Hashem is the fear of Hashem, which is wisdom, which is Torah, which is the face. Well, you know, thank you for hosting today. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. But it's so true. And so this is, I figured, you know, what, what fitting way to, to end in the half Torah and like this whole idea of Hashem's roar, Hashem's callback, whether it's through the prophets, whether it's the sound of the shofar, whether it's, you know, just a memory of something we did wrong in the past. That is a roar that's coming to us that's meant to make us tremble before him and turn back to him. It's meant to purge our hearts. Of all evil. Amen. May it be so. And as a practical takeaway, our fellow Habibi Avenger, Dr. Sakal, has in his little insights here, may God turn our hearts to him and restore us to our land and build his temple in Yerushalayim quickly in our times. Amen. Amen. Well, the heart of the universe. Yes. That that is a that's, title right there. It's my that's my practical takeaway. What I was going to share just the whole idea of Jewish people, Israel is the the heart of the universe. It's the heart of the body of, of the nations. And you know if if we want the world to be right, Israel need to be right. If we want Israel to be right, then our communities need to be right. And if we want our communities to be right, then our families need to be right. And if we want our families to be right, then we need to be right. Mm. And if we want everything to be right within us, then we need to cleanse our own hearts. See, the, the, the body of the entire universe is only restored when beginning with the, the restoration and the cleansing of our own hearts. And this was Amos's message as a social reformer. And, and more so, even Mashiach Yeshua's message. When he came to to clean, creating us a clean heart, as David prays to Hashem. And so it's through this clean heart, through the, the heart of the universe being purged from all evil and being cleansed, that it can truly attach itself to Hashem and allow his light to flow into the world and allow his kingdom to come, as you said, speedily and soon in our days. King Yehidatzon. Amen. Well, Hasis. May Adonai bless you, Todah Rabbah, for sharing your insights with us. This has been an amazing Haftarah. Get you some. Thank you. And as we always say, and it is very, very true, what do we know? What do we know? Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Zur Kol HaOlamim 
zadik beko hadorot, ha'el, ha'neeman, ha'omer ve'ose, ha'mdaber, um kayem, shekol, devorav, emet, vazerik. Neeman ata hu Adonai Eloheinu, ve neemanim, devarecha ve davar echad, mid varecha, achor lo yashuv recham, ki el melek neeman verakaman ata, baruk ata Adonai, ha'el ha neeman, bekol devarav, biskut ubeshem Mashiach Yeshua, amen. Amen. Well, this is Shomerman and Chasis Baz signing off for the Haftarah. Everyone have a Shavuot Tov and Shalom. Shalom.